Tonight's event is titled Europe 2020, the European Year in Review. I hope you're here for that, otherwise it'll be a long night for you. Um, this is an event that's co-hosted by the European Institute and the School of Public Policy. Um, and the point here is that we're going to review the year and look ahead a bit. Now, 2019 has been a fairly momentous year, uh, at least those of us who've paid attention to politics, economics, and all kinds of things. And 2020 <coughs> promises to be more of the same. So we'll try to take stock, and we'll try to look ahead uh, what happened in Europe and the European Union this past year. If you're on Twitter, of course everyone's on Twitter, the hashtag is LSE Europe, so hashtag LSE Europe. Now, taking stock of a whole year might be slightly audacious, maybe even a little bit presumptuous, given that we're living in a time when it's hard to remember what happened yesterday, or three weeks ago, three months ago, and so on. So I, I did the thing that professors do. I went back in time to put things in historical perspective. I looked at what happened in the year 1919, in the year 1969, 50 years ago, and 100 years ago. And those of you who have studied your history, you'll know that 1919 was a fairly momentous year in Europe. Um, just to remind you, the 8th Congress of the Russian Communist Party establishes a five-member Politburo. The original members were Vladimir Lenin, Leon Trotsky, Joseph Stalin, and Nikolai Krestinsky. That's 100 years ago. Ataturk lands at Samsun on the Black Sea coast, beginning the Turkish War of Independence. A small thing, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, not too far from here in France, ending uh, World War I and also establishing the League of Nations. So that's 100 years ago, and it seems like that was a big deal, sort of in retrospect. 1969, if you think back, those of us who were alive then, I was a little boy, so I wasn't paying much attention to politics, but 1968-69 were some pretty tumultuous years in European politics and history as well. If you think about the Prague Spring, um, happening during that time. Yasser Arafat was appointed chairman of the PLO. The U.S. population reaches 200 million. Today it's 330 and counting. Right? Golda Meir, those of you who pay attention to Israeli and Middle Eastern politics, was sworn in as the first female prime minister of Israel. And of course, who could forget the moon landing? Right? Man went to the moon 50 years ago. <coughs> Nothing quite so momentous happened this year, but it's certainly worth remembering. Um, oh, there was a small thing that happened in December of 1969. There was this thing called the ARPANET, which it basically is a four-node ARPANET network was established, which basically is the internet today. All right, so we're in 2019. Fast forward to, to 2019. We're going to take stock. Fear not. We have a panel of wonderful speakers and panelists with you uh, tonight. So I'm going to introduce them really quickly. On my left here is Dr. Spiros Economides, who is an associate professor in international relations and European politics in the European Institute here at the LSE. Everyone's an LSE person. I'll just say that really quickly. Then next to him, we've got Swati uh, Dingra, who is a is, is an associate professor now. Uh, congratulations in economics. <laughs> Uh, in the Department of Economics here at the LSE. Next to her, we have Professor Sarah Hobold, who's the Sutherland Chair in European Institutions in the Department of Government. And then last but never least is uh, Dr. Sarah Heyman, who's the Academic Director of the School of Public Policy. 
they all have expertise in different areas. Um, so what we'll do really quickly is uh, that we will have each of them take about five minutes to give us their 2019 review, so to speak, from their perspective. And then we'll have some predictions as well, and then we'll open it up for questions. So I gave them an assignment, as, as one does. We give assignments to people um, to come up with an image to reflect the year for them. An image that would, they would be able to talk to and tell a story about. And I thought to myself, I should do the assignment too. I don't know how hard an assignment it is. It turns out it's kind of a hard assignment. If you think about sort of a single image that should capture what we've all gone through this last year. So I got out my computer and my favorite search engine, and I Googled Europe 2019. Here's what came up. That was the first image that came up. Turns out when you Google Europe 2019, you get a bunch of maps. So the internet thinks Europe is a place. It's a place composed of countries. The map also has, literally this is the first image, European Union all over it. It seems to have a neighborhood, right? It seems to be a place in the world composed of countries and something called the European Union with some neighbors. I thought to myself, this isn't good enough. It's not very sexy, is it? A map? What does that do? So I sort of said, told the internet, please don't show me any more maps. Europe 2019, no maps, please. So I'll show you one more image, and then we'll go to each of the panelists. Here's what came up. And if you've been studying your Europe this past year, that is a slightly um, surprising picture, perhaps, given what's been happening in the world. So I thought this was very apropos for talking about Europe in 2019. So I'm going to shut up at this point um, and let the other panelists get on with their assignment. I think we'll have, first have Dr. Economides talk about his Europe. Should I pull up the image? Go ahead. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, good evening, everybody. So my brief was not only to come up with an image, but come up with an image which represents the area of, wor of work that I do, that I work in. And so my work is mainly in European external relations, European foreign policy. And I chose this image because it reflects the problems that Europe has faced externally, not only in 2019, but perhaps in the last three or four years. This is a cumulative process. It's a long-term process. But each of these individual leaders uh, represents a set of specific problems. And collectively, they also represent a general problem for the European Union. So I have two very, very basic points to make. Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, Recep Tayyip Erdogan represent a series of very, very important and deep-rooted problems for the European Union internationally. Individually, if I just go through them very, very quickly, we know that Donald Trump represents a specific set of problems for the European Union, both in style and in substance. A lot of what Donald Trump says with respect to Europe is not new. American presidents, generally speaking, have an attitude towards certain European problems which is perennial especially in the area of burden sharing. You have to lift your share of the burden. The United States of America should not be paying for your security and defense. Donald Trump does this. Barack Obama did it before him. We go back all the way to the 1950s, the same theme. But Donald Trump does it in a different way. And he does it in a way which really gets up the nose of the Europeans. And what it actually does, in a sense, is represent a growing rift between the USA 
and the European Union in terms of style as well as in terms of substance. What Donald Trump essentially is doing much more than American presidents did with respect to Europe in the field of trade, in the field of security, in the field of defense, in the field of climate change is a kind of divide and rule whereby past American presidents, especially in the 50s and 60s, were trying to find ways of uniting the Europeans in their political uh, and economic um, trajectory, he's very divisive. And he's very divisive essentially for domestic political reasons. So in very specific ways, Donald Trump represents, over a period of time, a set of very specific challenges to the European Union which have become increasingly problematic. And we're seeing some of the fallout of this even today in the context of the 70th anniversary of NATO, where a meeting between Donald Trump and President Macron seemed to be quite volatile uh, and included some phrases which we might want to come back later uh, and discuss, which were quite amusing as well. Vladimir Putin represents a series of challenges as well, which are cumulative. They're cumulative to the extent that this is a president whose actions challenge the authority of the European Union directly. If one wants to think of the annexation of Crimea, an ongoing situation which remains unresolved for the European Union, if one wants to think of what is happening in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass, where the European Union has become, in a sense, the representative of the international community through the Minsk agreement of trying to find some kind of resolution to this crisis, Vladimir Putin is an irritant and is an irritant that challenges the authority of the European Union in Europe. If it's not in the Ukraine, it's in southeastern Europe in the Western Balkans, where supposedly there's a growing Russian influence in Serbia and Bosnia in northern Macedonia. He represents a challenge which uh, the European Union has responded to in a rather unified manner, especially through the imposition of economic sanctions, but it's also very divisive because certain European countries, certain European member state interests are challenged more than others. In the field of energy security, for example, some European states are much more susceptible to Russian actions than others. In direct potential physical threat, if you are in the Baltic Republics or Finland, your concerns uh, about your security are much, much, uh, uh, much more threatened by uh, an increasing Russian animosity to the European Union than elsewhere. So Vladimir Putin individually, Russia individually, presents a set of challenges to the European Union which have continued into 2019 and are import, an important part, an essential part of the EU's external, uh, external uh, uh, framework of action. President Erdogan, we know, challenges the European Union constantly, for example, in the area of refugee flows and who is responsible for monitoring refugee flows and allowing refugees to cross the Aegean uh, into Greece and into, into Europe. There's also the question of a stalled accession process and what the European Union wants to do with the process of enlargement, which is partly focused on the inability to shift Turkey away from this uh, current position of not wanting to continue down the path of joining the European Union. President Erdogan poses a very distinct set of challenges to the European Union in terms of the attractiveness of the European Union to prospective members. Up until recently, countries were queuing up to join. Now, at the head of the queue is a very recalcitrant country that says, well, we don't need you anymore. And on top of that, we can make life very uncomfortable for you in one very specific area of activities. There are other areas, for example, the Eastern Mediterranean, Cyprus, hydrocarbons, and a series of issues which uh, the Turkish president uses to, uh, uh, to challenge the authority and ability of the European Union to act. So individually, these three uh, leaders and their countries provide significant challenges in very specific areas to the European Union and have done so for a number of years and nothing has changed in 2019. 
More importantly, though, there is a cumulative challenge provided by these kinds of leaderships, which I think is the most dangerous challenge the European Union faces in 2000, faced in 2019 and perhaps faces in the future because it's a problem that the European Union has to deal with in terms of its own identity uh, in the international arena. And that is these three leaders, and perhaps some others whom I haven't put up here on this image, pose a challenge to the worldview of the European Union. In a, sense, in a sense, what these leaders are doing is revisionist. They are rivals to the European Union. They challenge the European Union in terms of how it wishes to see the international community and international society and international system of states. They challenge the worldview of the European Union, which might be based on rights and values and the protection of and promotion of democracy. They challenge the European Union in terms of its interests as well. There are specific threats to European interests in economic terms, in terms of refugee flows, in terms of te territorial annexation. So their cumulative challenge is not one simply of the individual component parts, but it's a challenge about what the EU represents and how well it can actually defend those values and interests in the international sphere. And in 2019, I think the EU has come up against a wall. It's come up rather short in terms of dealing with the challenge that's posed cumulatively by these kinds of people. Um, uh, across the board. One final point. This kind of challenge, this revisionist challenge, also links in with a subject which I think some of my colleagues on the panel will take up uh, in their particular interventions, and that is that this growth of a liberal democracy which is evident in some parts of Europe, in a lot of Europe, whether it's Central Eastern Europe or Western Europe, is linked to the kind of politics which are partly preached by the collective here in one way or another. So there's a distinct link between the external profile of the European Union and how it deals with this challenge and what is going on in the political system of the European Union itself within certain states and societies. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. I have lots and lots of questions that I can't ask now because we're going to go to our second panelist. Uh, Swati, do you want me to pull up your Should slide? I So sorry to take you from like a nice, happy picture that you could just sit back and look at to something which is a bit more demanding of your time. So I'm going to start with saying what was sort of the big event that happened. There was one thing that we learned, which was that the Brexit vote's going to happen, and now it starts looking much, much more likely after this year that that really is going to go through in ways that most people didn't anticipate at the beginning of when these pictures were drawn. So let me give you a little bit of background about what I'm saying. So I'm going to be thinking about the fact that this is a post-crisis era. What has happened since the financial crisis is that real wages, most economists would estimate at least sort of 10 to 20 percent lower than what they were had they continued from the financial crisis onwards on the same trend. What is sort of even, even more striking, what we've learned sort of recently, is that since the referendum, so let me give you a little bit more background, what was happening before the referendum, post-crisis, till the point we get to the referendum. Real wages in this country had been growing about 1% every year. So every year you would expect to see on average everybody in the UK was getting 1% higher real wage growth, real wage every year. Come the referendum, that wage growth today is at 0.1%. So it's gone an order of magnitude lower. Getting any kind of real wage growth in an economy after it's suffered a massive crisis is hard enough without trying to create more problems for yourself. And what this is really doing is trying to get at what the causes of that real wage stagnation have been. 
So what have I plotted here? Unfortunately, you can't see below this, but let me actually tell you what it is, which is here's the industries which weren't very, so half of the industries of the UK, and I don't mean just manufacturing, I mean services and manufacturing, half of the people are employed in industries which are really exposed to when Sterling tanked right after, right on referendum night. The other half are the ones we're calling the ones that are not very exposed in terms of how much they buy from abroad, how much they need of foreign inputs to be able to make their own goods and services. And what we see happening here is that they all sort of inch along from 2012 onwards till the referendum day. They're kind of starting to recover real wage growth in this country. And things are rising. Things are sort of starting to look like a normal labor market might be coming. And then around this point when the referendum happens, a couple of quarters later after which the, in, the import costs have really gone up for the country because of this depreciation, what you see is basically this line is no longer growing and that's the real wage stagnation that we're seeing and it's much bigger for industries that are really exposed to the sterling depreciation shock. Industries which really depend on buying stuff from outside to be able to make their own goods and services. And I think one of the main things that we've got to watch out for in this economy is that all of you need to get much more vigilant about learning about how economics works today. It's not the way that most politicians tell us, which is that what we would have expected them to say would be, great, pounds lost its value. You can now start, ex start exporting a lot to foreign countries, and that should actually be really good for economic activity in this country. That's not what we see happening. And the reason that's not happening is we live in a much more integrated world we do businesses across borders, and those are the kinds of labor markets that people like you are going to be entering. I hate to be the bringer of bad news. I do this to every student I meet, and let me just reiterate that. I'm smiling, but I don't mean to smile in the sense of that this is good news coming. I just mean to say, you know, sorry, it's going to have to be me saying it again and again and again. People like you, young people, when you enter the job market, things are going to be much worse for you in terms of what opportunities are available than were available sort of before the crisis or even a few years ago. And that's the kind of thing we need to watch out for, that is the economy going to be able to recover from that, set, from that sort of earlier issue of low wage growth, austerity cuts, and now finally getting to the point where even sort of private businesses are starting to cut back on wages. So I don't know how we're going to recover from here. Right. <laughs> on that note, between Trump and stagnating wages, um, uh, is there any happy news? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have happy news for you. Do you want the, uh, the clicker? Oh, yeah, do you have the clicker? Then yeah. I can stay sitting. Yes. Oops. Okay. So, um, this is my image. Maybe we can sell off some of the French presidential gold or something too. Um, so when I got this assignment, you know, I don't particularly, I thought I've worked hard at school not to be set homework by professors, but anyway. Uh, when I got this assignment, this was first immediate, I didn't have to do any Googling. I thought this is, uh, this is the image I like because I think it represents a couple of things about 2019 um, that for me were significant in the area of electoral politics, public opinion, in the EU that I work in. And the first is, this was of course the, the year where the UK was meant to leave the European Union, but didn't. And the image is significant, it's a, it's a bit dark there, but I don't know if you can see, this is uh, President Macron together with um, Boris Johnson, uh, their first meeting. 
And as you can see, Boris Johnson has his foot on the table, uh, which you don't normally do, I think, when you're in the company of... Um, of the French president. Um, well, there is a kind of whole backstory about how apparently Macron tricked him into doing it. But either way, I think uh, the one thing about this image is it sort of represents what Britain has more and more uh, become to be seen in 2019, namely this sort of slightly chaotic, bumbling character of a nation that doesn't really know how to behave in polite company. It doesn't really know even how to leave the European Union when it said it's going to leave the European Union. And so that's the first reason I thought this image was significant. That clearly the European the Britain did not, the reason it didn't leave in 2019 was not because there wasn't a deal with the European Union, but because that deal couldn't go through the British Parliament. The government couldn't get through its own deal. Uh, and, and whereas at that point, the European Union was a bit like, well, get on with it. Now, the second reason I think this image is significant is that, of course, a lot of the division that lie underneath Brexit are also divisions that are very evident across Europe. So it's all fine for the French to say, oh, look at the British, look at what a mess they're in. Thankfully, um, we're in such a good state. No, in fact, uh, Macron in the in the run-up to the European Parliament elections that took place in May 2019, May of this year, he said, well, these are the most significant elections. I mean, they always say that. But he said, these are the most significant elections because this is really the battle between progressive, liberal, pro-European values on the one hand and populist, nationalist values on the other hand. That's how he presented it. He, of course, representing, as he saw it, um, the former of those. And also, in some ways, Brexit and Britain, the latter. Yeah, because by many in Europe, Brexit was seen as the victory of sort of nationalist, Eurosceptic, uh, far-right forces. So that's the second. So, so now the silver lining, yeah? So the silver lining for the EU was that the EU was terribly worried back in 2016 when Brexit happened, and there's probably still many reasons to be worried. But anyway, there was a relief, uh, and not only because Europe managed to to, to stay, stick together in its uh, negotiations with the, U, uh, with the UK, but also because contrary to what, was, what some feared was that Brexit would lead to some kind of domino effect, some kind of contagion. What in fact happened is that a lot of Europeans looked at the UK and thought, ooh, this looks a bit like someone who doesn't know how to behave in polite company and can't even leave the club. So support for membership went up. That doesn't mean there's still not still Euroscepticism, but this sort of exit Euroscepticism where, oh, let's get out of here, was not seen as, was uh, lost some support. And also a lot of Eurosceptic parties, in fact, toned down their demands for referendum and toned down their demands for leaving the European Union in the wake of the Brexit referendum. And... Uh, but there was still this thing, of course, it didn't mean that the sort of populist threat or the Eurosceptic threat, and in particular in these 2019 <coughs> European Parliament elections, had gone away. And if you remember the coverage leading up to the European Parliament elections in May, it was all about this, yeah? It was all about the populist threat, the far right that we're now going to take over European Parliament elections. I remember doing quite a lot of interviews saying, well, you know, they're forecasted to do about the same as last time. And even then, not that they're not significant, but in the European Parliament, Parliament, actually, they will probably have limited influence. Maybe more importantly is what they do 
in the council. And that's what happened. We, we can look at the results from the, from the 2019 European Parliament election. And what happened was indeed that the center became more squeezed. It became more fragmented. And the, the Eurosceptic right did about the same uh, as they did last time, but with limited policy influence. And they have not managed to create the kind of pan-European force uh, that some feared. Now, also, the Brexit fear, Brexit became much more of a deterrence in 2019 uh, than a sort of contagion effect. Um, we ran this European uh, election study, and this is just to show uh, the question, will the UK be better off or worse off after Brexit? And overwhelmingly, people think that so the blue lines are worse off and the orange lines are are better off. Even the British don't think they'll be better off. Uh, the UK is in there still being. And the, and the last one now that Spiros is here, the very the ones who can't decide are not the British, but the Greek. <laughs> not surprisingly, maybe because of what the the EU has put Greece through. But they're the only ones who think, oh, maybe actually it's better off uh, outside. But but that's very interesting. In other words, for the for the EU. I think 2019 was the year where actually they were like, well, Brexit at least has not been the sort of catastrophe in the short term that they feared it would be. And also just, I promised Chris that I had to show a multiple, some real regression results. So uh, I, this is just on the Eurosceptic vote in the European Parliament election. What kind of things drove the uh, voters to vote for Eurosceptic parties? And I will just give you the takeaway instead of sort of going through it. And really, whether or not you thought Brexit would make the UK work worse off had quite a significant effect, and just as much as sort of general Euroscepticism. So it's really the sort of looking at Britain and thinking, wow, that doesn't look uh, like something we want to put ourselves through made uh, Eurosceptic parties generally less appealing. So I will uh, end it there uh, and say that's um, for 2019. Perhaps the picture will look different in 2020, but we'll talk about that later. Thank you very much for taking on the assignment. Even though you cheated on the assignment very clearly, there were too many slides, too many images. <laughs> Sorry. Um, thank you very much. And now we'll turn to Sahiman. Thank you very much. And I have obeyed by the rules and only have one photo or one picture that I wanted to share with you. But I think this is the picture that um, really stands out for me for 2019. Um, as um, Swati mentioned, we have been in a post-crisis um, period for a couple of years and we to me it seems that we are entering into something new and I think that the photo here of Greta Thunberg on school strike for the climate uh, um, illustrates a number of different things uh, for this new uh, phase for, uh, that Europe is, is heading into. Um, first of all, uh, it of course really uh, illustrates the big uh, umbrella topic of climate change and the environment and a very new political reality that governments, private sector and societies are having to navigate uh, going forward. Um, so there is uh, no doubt that uh, Greta has put this topic um, into the public domain and public debate uh, in, in a very different way than we've seen it uh, presented previously, going from, of course, the most senior political levels to street level uh, action. 
And I think that uh, it therefore is a very powerful message. Um, it also stands for uh, perhaps a new um, voice and a new political force differently to um, what we've seen previously with social movements that have been um, much more defined uh, with the new uh, actions that are being taken uh, regarding climate change. Um, we are seeing much more immediate and much more instant um, interactions across borders and across all levels of society, across generations. And I think that this, again, is another political reality that is um, going to change the way um, governments inter uh, engage with topics uh, that are related to not only climate change, but all the many, uh, um, let's say, spillover or related uh, areas, such as migration, refugee situation, um, investments, etc., uh, etc. <coughs> So, it, and that is also powerful because it, it's, it, it is anchored with a, a, a different generation, of course. We've not seen a movement by kids, but now, of course, it's the future generations are active in, in this kind of, of uh, political debate. And I think that's uh, something that governments and the governance systems will have to adapt to going forward. Uh, but I also think it illustrates something um, to me about potential cleavages uh, that we may see in Europe and elsewhere going forward. Because of course Greta is from Sweden, from a privileged background, and one could say that that makes her voice all the more, more important as this is of course um, the profile with uh, the largest consumerism and, and, and um, environmental footprint uh, potentially and so it is extremely important that someone like her is able to to uh, to set the agenda but nevertheless she's having a very different experience than someone uh, living on the front line of climate change whether that is in Europe on the borders of Europe or um, uh, in other places on the planet and um, we will see this. Uh, I'm sure that there will be huge conflicts between the privileged north, western um, uh, um, place, the uh, politicians and, and, and uh, uh, opinion uh, shapers, and, and those actually having to live with consequences of where livelihoods and, and security is, is, is a real concern. Um, and um, today even we have heard from the new uh, head of the European Commission all the great ambitions for, for, for Europe going forward with a European uh, Green Deal. But again, um, here it is likely to uh, bring up cleavages in, in, in Europe uh, regarding how climate change and all the policy areas that uh, are connected to climate change issues will be affected and the inequalities this bring out in Europe. So I think that there will be um, a lot of uh, political diplomacy and masterminding needed for actually um, ensuring that these cleavages do not break, break us up rather than uh, bring us together. Of course, uh, Greta is uh, very powerful in, in her way of, of uh, 
bringing about inspiration and concrete um, uh, suggestions for action so we can hope that, uh, that this can feed into to, to the way uh, political decision makers also um, take this agenda forward. But I think that uh, she is someone who inspires the debate but also really symbolizes um, some of the challenges that uh, we will see coming up in the new year. Great, thank you very much, Sam. So, I'm going to deviate slightly from the script in the sense that as I was listening to, you, to the four of you, I was trying to think to myself, in a way they're talking about very different things, but they're also talking about some things that are actually quite similar. Before we get to the predictions for 2020, sorry. Um, so I wanted to ask the panel, part of what I hear you talk about, so if you look back at 2019 and just look at, when you just zoom into the year, zoom into the moment, oftentimes what we see is the, the bigger than life personalities, the people, the, the, the flashy event, and that's something that's vivid and memorable. But if you zoom out, you, you tend to sort of think more about the structural features of a polity of a world that we live in that help shape what happens in it. So if you think about 1919 and Lenin and Stalin as larger than life personalities and Trump and Erdogan and what have you, Greta, um, it's easy to get hung up on these personalities. And I wonder as I look back on 2019, how, to what extent is what we see really driven by underlying an underlying evolution in technology, in, in, in the climate, in, 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 in economic development, or is it that this, all this agency happening by these individuals who just are innovators, entrepreneurial, politically, even if you don't like Donald Trump, he is a political entrepreneur, right? Um, so how much, when you look back at, at this past year, how much causal weight, how much responsibility do you assign to these agents, and how much responsibility do you assign to the underlying structures? Because ultimately, what I think about when I hear you talk is, is resilience. Resilience of institutions, resilience of the world we live in, resilience of an economy, resilience of the planet, and to what extent it can cope with these challenges that we're facing. Uh, I know that we hadn't talked about this beforehand, but it sort of struck me that we're talking about different things, but we're also talking about similar things as social scientists. What do you think about that? Well, in, in one respect, from, from my particular area of interest, what you're seeing are a series of perhaps structural problems within the institutional framework of the European Union or the polity, as you said, and certainly structural problems which are manifesting themselves in a variety of different ways. On the one hand, we mentioned Brexit. Brexit is a literal form of disintegration. And we've got disintegration happening in front of us as, 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 as we witness it happening. Uh, there are elements of fragmentation across the union, which are represented by this form of a liberal democracy that I mentioned before, and a variety of other features. The image I showed you of these three leaders doesn't suggest that they are the agents of this, but what they are, in effect, is exploiting this. And so there is a vicious circle here whereby um, certain existential and structural problems within the European Union in which uh, many Europeans are questioning uh, the, not only the, the institutional framework of the European Union, but the raison d'etre of the European Union in many ways, are being pushed on and egged on by these, uh, uh, these if you want, um, 
foreign agents who are manipulating the situation for very specific national interests and for very specific reasons which they think uh, may aid their country in terms of their national interest or also their own domestic political standing for a variety of reasons. So the two things go hand in hand. That's why they sort of translate to the economy. Yeah. So I think this is really what worries economists. It's not that we're concerned about tariffs today. It's not that we're concerned about not having financial passports tomorrow. It's the fact that institutions that govern international flows of you know anything economic is really being challenged at this point. And I think the fact that Trump put on tariffs, I mean, at the end of the day, they're in a very small fraction of goods. That's not going to completely stall the American economy. But the reason it matters is precisely because it calls into question the entire world trading system. And that's really what we're up against. In terms of sort of how other institutions are feeding into these, these sorts of issues is that I'm going to give you the Brexit example, which is in the run-up to the referendum, 96% of economists agreed that Brexit was going to have econo do economic damage to the UK, no matter how you cut it. The numbers varied here and there, but broadly, that was the consensus. But every time you watch BBC, you would never see that sort of issue, that sort of view coming through. What you would see would be, here's one expert on the side which says you should remain if you want to curtail economic damage, and here's the other side which says that that's really not true, and we were getting equal airtime. So in that sense, if you're going to already skew the debate in that direction, and if the publicly sort of, you know, this is not Rupert Murdoch's sky news that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't really expect standards. This is publicly accountable. This is the BBC doing the same thing. And I think that really sort of Give calls into question whether we are going to come out of all of this finally having institutions intact. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I agree in that sense. So, so clearly there are these big structural things. So taking, looking at the, the sort of things I talked about, you said there's resilience, and that's partly because I talked about, you know, how has the EU responded? But clearly, again, Brexit as a moment was an example of where there's underlying structural factors that make this something political entrepreneurs can exploit. But without that agency, you can easily sort of go back in time and think there were a couple of decisions that wouldn't have been taken and we wouldn't be leaving the European Union. I'm not making a normative call on whether that's good or bad that we wouldn't, but, but, but David Cameron's decision to put a referendum pledge in, the referen in, the, in his manifesto was not in any way inevitable. There was no, if you look at the public salience of the EU, it was not there. Yeah? There was no one in 2015 were interested in the EU. That doesn't mean that the sort of concerns they had weren't real and some of them were you know, very cleverly linked to the EU and some of them were linked to the EU and some of them were not. Like immigration was an issue. But I'm just saying that was, there was the political agency of David Cameron in saying we're going to have a referendum in, on that. That means we are where we are in 2019, as Spirit says, a, a very significant form of disintegration of the EU with the first major member state to leave the EU. Presumably, uh, we're not making, oh, I won't make any predictions yet. So that's, that's for you to come, yeah? Maybe, maybe not. We'll be Go leaving. ahead. Anyway, but you know, so, so I think agency is important. Now, does that mean Brexit clearly there's underlying divisions in British society that that has mobilized, but that could have been mobilized in different ways. And I think that's also what we are seeing with the international society, I think. I mean, I work on political actors, so I think they're hugely important in mobilizing and challenging concerns that people have 
have in a certain direction, whether that's against the EU, whether that's against immigrants. And that's also what I would say to Swati about the, the, um, the, the concerns about the economy. People didn't vote Brexit because there weren't enough uh, economists on air uh, uh, talking positive, uh, negatively about Brexit. They, because they didn't ultimately care about the economy when they voted. I mean, that was the thing is that was not the main concern for people who voted Leave. Uh, they were actually overwhelmingly concerned that it certainly wouldn't be better economically, but that was a price worth paying. That's not to say that, it, but I think the main thing was that the argument that won the day was not one, the Remain argument, which was solely focused on hammering home about the economic risk, but, but one that's much more to do with questions of identity and so on, and they really won the day, I think. But yeah, I think agency is important. Do you want to say something first? No. Well, I think it's really interesting question, this uh, thing about at what point in uh, political cycles and economic cycles and social cycles we need the agency and we've seen the agency uh, really driving change. Uh, I, I think that this picture certainly shows the shortcoming of institutions uh, uh, at a global scale, at a European scale and at a national scale and that it is important that we recognize that um, the institutions with all the checks and balances we had expected, whether in the U.S., where when Trump was elected, many said, well, the, you know, the U.S. is um, very heavily guarded uh, against presidential um, dominance, but then nevertheless you're seeing quite a lot of uh, changes happening during his, his term, of course, and there's more to come, uh, most likely. But um, I think in Europe, um, uh, the same thing of like, we, there's been a very, very heavy uh, focus on the kind of structures in place to deal with um, the crisis scenarios that we experienced with the Eurozone crisis and also what is falsely called the immigration crisis in Europe. Um, that these have been the real sort of um, stress test on the European institutions. So in many ways, there is now a very solid framework, but not allowing for a lot of flexibility to actually then maneuver a very fast-paced um, policy agenda. And I think that we cannot say it, which actors and which kind of, of, um, of leadership it is that we, uh, we need um, in, in very specific points in time, but certainly uh, the kind of uh, entrepreneurial spirit you've seen uh, in the last couple of years has not come from the center of, of policy making. It's not come from the, the, the big institutions such as you know, the, the presidents uh, of, of the EU institutions or um, even from some of the, of the countries. There have really been lack of, uh, uh, of leadership. So I think that... Um, we, it's, it's a matter of identity politics uh, going forward very much. So, so um, let's get to the fun part, the predictions. Is that, so what are you looking to, in, if I'm going to start with you at the end, so, um, in 2020, what are you going to be looking for? So I think that um, uh, Spears already pointed out uh, that uh, Europe is having to deal with a lot of uh, big existential issues in a changing uh, global political context. And a lot of what the EU will be going forward will be um, 
outside of its border, reacting to, to events outside of its borders. Um, but there's also, of course, a lot happening within the, the EU, and I think that um, the, the big topics that we are to see um, from the beginning of January uh, will be um, the policies set up by the new European Commission. Governments are having to now engage seriously with budget negotiations, so who's going to finance the EU policies going forward. Um, the new Green Deal that the com Commission has just um, uh, uh, announced, migration and security issues, all of these things are really uh, existential topics for Europe going forward. And we are not to see big government changes during 2020. There are actually only um, very few uh, elections coming up. But these big issues um, will define the path ahead for Europe and certainly also its identity globally as, uh, as well as in, um, internally. Um, and this, if I can just, like, one last point on this, um, is uh, after a period where we've had a majority of centre-right governments and a very heavy dominance of their network within the EPP group, that has changed in the last couple of years, and we are now looking at a much more fragmented uh, picture, both between the governments and across the EU institutions. So... Right now, there are only, I think, seven or eight governments that are part of the <coughs> centre-right EPP group and belong to what, that um, party family that has traditionally, traditionally really set the political agenda for Europe. Um, that is no longer the case, and uh, the EPP group is having to ask itself some very hard questions regarding, for an example, its position on um, Auburn, uh, and his um, uh, membership of the EPP group going forward, as well as how to deal with some of the issues in Central and Eastern Europe, because mo most of these uh, countries and governments that are in the EPP group are now um, in the Central and Eastern Europe. So the EPP group, having been um, the dominant force in the old member states in Western Europe, has now moved... Uh, eastwards and perhaps to a much more um, uh, a, a policy position that is much more to the right. Other governments are having to find their ways of of, um, of collaborating um, across issues that are not necessarily straightforward to find compromises on. And the budget, uh, I expect, in the next half year even will really tell us whether or not it is possible to overcome some of these differences between uh, uh, those governments or if we are to see a much more um, uh, coalition-driven uh, uh, governance mode uh, between governments in the, in the Council. Professor okay. Well, so... I, we don't, I don't really like predicting because it's so easy to like prove, uh, prove me wrong then when things That's actually happen. <laughs> but, um, but let me try anyway. So given that I talked about Brexit um, and the repercussions of that, let me predict that uh, the United Kingdom leaves the European Union on the 31st of January 2020. But that doesn't mean that Brexit is done. Uh, Brexit will obviously be legally done, but that will then be very quickly followed by... Um, 
attempts to get trade negotiations, a trade deal done between the UK and the EU in a very short space of time in that we will have a government, if that prediction is true, that has promised to get that done by the end of the year, which will be hard if you go beyond a sort of rudimentary trade deal. So that's on the, on the UK-EU side. On the EU side, I think, even though they might have weathered the sort of immediate Brexit storm of not having contagion, I think a lot of the old problems, as Sarah also said, that, that are maybe not rearing its head right now will come back. Uh, Sarah already mentioned migration refugees. This was not, has not been solved as an EU issue, and it will come back to haunt the EU, I think, next year, and also the Eurozone. You know, it's, it's, it, it's a concern and it's a problem, and again, it's not one that's going away. And then finally, as Sarah also mentioned, the issues of, of what to do with the sort of democratic backsliding with the EU. That's, uh, within the EU, there's been a lot of turning, a bl uh, sort of not pretending it wasn't happening, including um, within the EPP, but generally, but is there, that's, that's, these are sort of three big existential crises about the single currency, about the nature of democracy in Europe and about Europe's borders, and I think they will, they will also play a role uh, in EU politics next year. Good ones. Very good. Okay. Sati. So I'll make my quick point, which I was going to say. So, so being an economist, I have to defend this point. I feel compelled to, which is that it's not all about social identity. Same markers that predict when people define social identity are also markers which say whether there's social mobility or economic deprivation, social deprivation of any kind. And I think a lot of the social identity narrative is being engineered by the media itself. And we know that that can have really powerful, you know, it can be a powerful force. And one example of that, I'm going to actually cite my colleague Stephen Machen's work, which is looking at what happened to hate crimes right after you heard about a terrorist attack happening in the UK. And what you see is that the big spike happens not just when the terror attack has happened, but after the media coverage starts. That that's when, you know, people's and like <coughs> generally the level of sort of anger is getting higher and higher. And then you start seeing sort of further division and further division. So I'm really worried that that is sort of where we've already pretty much headed, but hopefully, you know, very encouraging comments from people in the recent week kind of make me think maybe this is okay. So I'll now come to my prediction and not bore you more with my rant about that. But the main prediction is I think there's going to be a really big victory for Boris Johnson. We are going to try to crash out in terms from the EU, unless all of you here have registered to vote. That's my only hope. <laughs> Um, uh, we were discussing football predictions before we came on stage, and I think I'd rather actually feel more comfortable making predictions about who's going to win the Premiership or who might be the Champions League winner come May. But the important thing here is that there are some forgotten issues which I think will come back to, um, come back to the centre stage in terms of EU external relations. Some of the issues have already been raised in terms of the impact of democratic backsliding, uh, Europe's borders, refugees, the external trade environment and what that means for the European Union. But the one issue that we've forgotten about, and it's only come to the attention of a few people towards the end of 2019, is the forgotten issue of enlargement. Mm. And the issue of enlargement is one which has taken a new trope. It's come around in a completely different way. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, we were talking about enlargement fatigue in a format which was about what do we do with these states that have come in, how do we absorb them? It was rather patronizing, but it was to do with 
what do we do in terms of making institutional arrangements and structural changes to absorb 10 new states that have come into the European Union and brought with them essentially practical problems in the financial sphere, in the decision-making sphere, in parliamentary sense, in a variety of different ways. What we have now is a different kind of enlargement fatigue. It's an enlargement fatigue where the existing members of the European Union don't want to take others in because they're not sure what the European Union represents. And they're not sure exactly what it is that the European Union wants to do vis-a-vis these countries that remain outside the European Union but are European. And that's a completely different kind of enlargement fatigue. It's an enlargement fatigue which comes from this kind of existential crisis that we've been talking about. Who are we? What do we represent? What does this democratic backsliding do in terms of effect? A populist moment which seems to be spreading both on the uh, left and the right across across Europe. Um, Identity politics which are fragmenting various parts of the Union. So how do we expect to incorporate new members when we can't actually decide what we are and what we represent within (coughs) the European Union? This is an area which is going to come back because there are states knocking on the door and they've been kept at arm's length for a number of years now, but towards the end of this year there are increasing divisions within the European Union about whether we should proceed with enlargement or not, and I think in 2020 this will become a very important item on the agenda because exactly it is an existential question and not merely one of administrative capacity or absorption capacity. Thank you. I'll just add, speaking of football, we will, the men's football will have a fabulous tournament this summer, uh, the winner of which is completely unpredictable at the moment. Um, the only prediction I might make, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, would be that 2020 is the end of Angela Merkel's political career, and that Germany will have a new chancellor. Take it for what it's worth. Um, so what I'd like to do at this point is open it up to the audience <coughs> and see if there are questions. Maybe take Good evening. Thanks very much for the panel. I find it very insightful as a student who's very eager to um, help the world and try to solve these problems to get quite a, <laughs> of an overview about them. Um, I have one question and a comment, if I may. I'll start with a question. Um, the question will be directed to Dr. Economides, and uh, I'd be very curious to hear um, your thoughts on today's uh, NATO summit um, for NATO's anniversary in London. And since you've mentioned Trump, Erdogan, and Putin, just in general knowing, um, what would be your thoughts on, um, on, today's, um, on today's summit and what kind of challenge uh, this could present uh, both to security and defense and the European Union next year? And I think my comment would be that um, um, would be related to the map that was used in the very beginning of the presentation. And I feel compelled to say this comment not only as a national of Ukraine, but also as a European Institute student that I'm not sure whether it was appropriate to use the map where Crimea was marked as Russian territory. And um, I, I find it very important to remark because I'm not sure what was the purpose of this map. Maybe it was to show that the boundaries of Europe, you know, maybe it's a mistake to draw them like that, or I I believe there should have been a comment using this map. Thanks very much. So do we want to collect a couple of questions and then go from there? There was a lady in the back. (coughs) Yes. The very back. I wish to say something about the effect of, detrimental effect of socio-political tilt of the EU towards populism in third world countries like Sri Lanka. I am taking Sri Lanka particularly. Um, 
Sri Lanka, the 2009, uh, from 2009 till today, uh, the war affected region, war ravaged region has been hyper militarized and they are engaged. The uh, army websites explicitly say they are engaged in um, psychological operations. And in spite of all that, the EU granted Sri Lanka in 2017, that goes till today, GSP plus, that benefits the, uh, the south of the country, not the north of the country. Um, this is utter violations of human rights. Uh, how can we uh, put up with this? Um, uh, usually, EU stands for human rights of the oppressed at UNHRC, even for the people in the north in Sri Lanka, they stand for UNHR, human rights at UNHRC, but still they are giving this GSP plus, which is causing a detrimental effect on the people of the north. There is no economic development since the end of war. There is no political solution since the end of war. It's all oppression. And how can you answer for that one, please? Okay, thank you. Other questions? We'll take one more in this round. Yes, the Gentleman in the middle here. Thank you. Yeah, probably the worst place, place to get the mic to. Um, Alex Braley, Foreign Office, quick, three quick-fire uh, questions, if I may. Um, just um, if I could get your thoughts on uh, what the uh, top jobs process, so the renewal of the EU Commission President, European Council President, what that tells us about the future direction of the European Union without the UK in it. Um, secondly, uh, there's lots of strategic visions for the EU out there at the moment, which, if any, will triumph, and how that might play out in 2020 specifically. And on that note, linking to it, uh, von der Leyen, has, the new Commission President, has championed this Conference on the Future of Europe, which he wants to kick off in 2020. Uh, what impact might that have in shaping sort of the direction and narrative around uh, where the EU is heading? Thank you. All right, but these are three very meaty questions. But before we get to them, I'm, I'm going to big, say a big mea culpa to the uh, young woman in the very beginning, a, a map that shows Ukraine as, uh, sorry, Crimea as not being part of Ukraine is, is not a, an accurate map, right? And I honestly didn't notice. I just pulled it up. It was literally the first map that showed up from a website that I think had political maps of the world. So... My fault, and I completely accept the point. Um, then, who wants to go? Well, I'll just answer Yulia's question because it was directed at, at, at me. And we've had opportunities to discuss a lot of these things in various <laughs> seminars during the year, so since you want some more, Yulia, here you go. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing about today's and tomorrow's summit is that what has happened organizationally is an attempt to minimize uh, contact between the leaders in an open forum as much as possible. Uh, because there's so much vitriol flying around among so many different people that there may be side meetings going on behind closed doors and we won't find out the content of that until later, but the public side of it is minimized on purpose. The one thing that did happen today, which was quite interesting, was that in the wake of uh, President Macron, Macron calling NATO brain dead, uh, which, of course, Donald Trump then took personally, um, <laughs> which may be quite accurate. Um, he came back and said, you're being very nasty. Um, and that, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, uh, and so on and so forth. So this was an interesting spat uh, between uh, two leaders who are vying, in a sense, for leadership of this organization. 
in light uh, of the fact that I think Britain uh, receding, well, exiting the European Union and receding in importance in a sense for the United States of America leads to a challenge for authority within NATO, which is represented by the spat between uh, President Trump and Macron. Within the context of the summit, of course, there's also one of the three other individuals that I uh, pushed up on, uh, on the slide at the beginning, and that's the President of Turkey, who in his own way has decided to try and scupper the workings of the summit by saying, if the final communique uh, doesn't uh, uh, make it clear that um, Kurdish uh, fighters are terrorists, uh, then we will actually block a final communique coming out of the seventh anniversary. So every single person within this context is playing games for particular political reasons. And so I think that uh, the NATO summit represents uh, not only something very important and significant in terms of the 70th anniversary, but it also represents that there's a struggle going on within this entity between individuals and groups of states that are playing their own political games within a very specific framework. But here again, it sounds like we're almost questioning the raison d'etre of this organization at this point, given these varying incentives to not engage. Um, and what is the point of all of this if, if uh, we can't agree on a common mission, so to speak? Um, I'm not entirely sure I fully understood the question about Sri Lanka. Can we make it broader? Can we, if you want to speak to Sri Lanka, please do. I can maybe add something yes. to it. So I'm not going to speak to the context that you're very specifically referring to, but I can tell you more generally sort of issues about human rights. How are they going to figure in trade agreements? Should they be even in trade agreements? Should they be done something completely separately at the General Assembly or somewhere else that this is not the right forum for them? And why is it that GSP preferences are tied up with, with sort of behavior of these countries in certain ways? I think that's always been a massive challenge for any trade agreement any time in the world. And the way it's sort of progressed now is that, I mean, I see the merit in terms of tying these two things together, which is actually what France is now proposing to the European Union as well, that we want to tie in tax legislation together with trade agreements. How are we ever going to give a carrot to these two, other, two countries that are tax havens to be able to put in place policies that we want them to do? So I think there is some merit in doing that, but of course what it always does is that you start putting these clauses into agreements like these, which are about economics, which are not really agreements which are designed to deal with social justice issues. You start putting those in, typically the record has been the, these are very, very weak. Most of the times they're not enforceable, they're not even something you can take to a court of law and ask for a right. So in that sense, the human rights aspect of many of these kinds of agreements have not really worked well in the past. There have been a few cases of success, but they're really kind of few and far between. So in that sense, should you be doing that? I mean, I feel like those are the rules which are going to be rewritten soon in the sense that once we're seeing the world trading system collapse, once we're seeing institutions being undermined, what is going to replace it? And in that sense, sort of, you know, I hate to, again, put it in a really sort of stark light, but it's going to be, do you want the EU setting those rules at a world level? Or do you want the US? Or do you want some other kind of group of nations? Because that's really where we're at right now, that who... Who's going to be the agenda setter, basically? And I'm not sure that the EU is the right place to do it. As you pointed out, there are issues concerning what human rights abuses have gone on elsewhere. But in general, the other options are also not looking that attractive as the problem. Interesting. 
And the gentleman at the end asked three questions, really, rather than just the one, uh, about top jobs in the EU, I believe, strategic vision for the EU, but then also the Conference on the Future of Europe. Um, I can start with the top jobs, uh, perhaps. Yep. I think this process has been really interesting uh, in terms of um, the appointments that have been made. Certainly, tell us something about the trajectory that Europe is on or the EU is on at the moment. Um, first of all, um, I think it's uh, uh, says something about the power balance. It's very much been an intergovernmental um, process. They ignored the European Parliament and the Spitzenkandidaten process. So um, the decisions for who gets the top most senior uh, political jobs in the EU sits squarely with the, with the governments, and uh, that is not for discussion at the moment. I think also it's very interesting that we have gone, um, so first of all, that there is an underrepresentation in general in all the appointments that have been made, not just at the three, most, uh, the three top jobs, but also in the levels below, that there is a real imbalance in terms of uh, uh, geographical representation. It is heavily overrepresented by um, let's say, the Western and Northern member states um, uh, predominantly. Uh, but also the balance between the Commission and the uh, European Council. So um, we have seen um, Donald Tusk now leaving uh, on a note which is very much about um, uh, the kind of the concerns about illiberal politics uh, within and uh, on the borders of, of the EU, and he's spoken very... Uh, um, uh, openly about that and made no friends along the way. I think that um, what, we'll, what we see now is the, this is only the third person to come in uh, as president of the European Council. It's another Belgian who has come in who is saying he will operate uh, effectively, but it's also clear he will do what the, uh, Van Rompuy did as the first president of very much take a uh, uh, um, less prominent and political position in uh, 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 maneuvering the, the, the diplomatic channels uh, necessary for getting the governments together. So it's not a political leader for Europe that has been appointed. It is very much a broker uh, between the governments. That vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the new commission president which is certainly a very ambitious and uh, uh, um, fast-moving uh, person. I think that we are we are looking at uh, the, uh, the governments having um, come to agreement that Europe needs action. Uh, the Commission is leading the way. The governments are the ones deciding, setting the agenda, and then the Commission has to be delegated a lot of of. Um, authority on a number of uh, important policy areas in order to make things going because it's not necessarily possible to find compromises uh, at the most senior political level between governments. I think um, the UK, um, by, by most accounts, will be greatly missed in this picture because it often had a very pragmatic and uh, a big capacity to bring about compromises. Um, 
uh, also when Germany and France didn't necessarily agree on some of the big priorities. And so it'll be interesting to see how the dynamics play out. But I think that we are, we are looking at, a, again, a new phase for the EU going forward and that this, uh, these appointments have, will, will very much set the tone. Um, just on, on your point about following up on that and the point about the big visions. So, um, I mean, Sarah is, of course, right that this is, you know, this is the member states where they come in and who has formulated big visions for Europe. I mean, Merkel is not a visionary and she's, as Chris said, on her way out. So some mm -hmm. of this will depend on who succeeds her because if you look <coughs> historically about how Europe moves forward, the Franco-German axis is important. I mean, the UK is not has not been the big visionary of the EU. It has been France and Germany and even, well, they have helped and so on, but the big visions and the big sort of, t the France and Germany and that partnership has always been essential and otherwise things have not moved forward, um, where sometimes things have happened without the UK's uh, uh, explicit endorsement. Some, of course, saw the UK leaving as an opportunity, especially on the more federalist end. I think it's doubtful that some of these visions will be fulfilled just because the UK is not there. The UK is not the only sort of intergovernmentalist government in Europe. You know, there's that, that's the sort of vision that now we can have the United States of Europe just because the UK is not there, I think is very unrealistic. Macron is clearly the one that has formulated, I think, in Europe today the most sort of coherent vision in terms of having a very clear, both very clear sort of idea of how Europe should become more integrated, more political, more coherent, more of a world force, but at the same time also more differentiated. I think he has a realization that cannot be done even with EU 27. There has to be a core that go forward. How far that will be able to be materialized, I think will depend on the partner he finds in Germany in part. I think it's, you know, it's an ambition, ambitious vision, but at least he has one. And of course he has challenges at home as well. But he's the one who's sort of been out there and doing it. But, you know, this is clearly not, you know, Auburn's vision, for example. Um, so, so it's, uh, you know, the EU is generally best at modeling through, but sometimes it happens in fits and starts, as you know, when there's sort of odd spillovers where, you know, things can happen because they need to fix problems <laughs> that they've created. So, so I think uh, we're not going to see some massive big federalist transformation of Europe because the UK is not uh, there anymore. But, of course, in terms of the balance that you talked about what happens without the UK, is the UK has clearly been on on the more free market, let's push the single market agenda forward uh, compared to in terms of the sort of balance of powers within that. And, and so from uh, the, sort of the, the sort of Dutch Scandinavian view, you know, you are now losing the big, the big country, uh, or, you know, let's assume my prediction is right about the UK leaving, they, they will be losing the big country that was on, on that side, uh, whereas there's more sort of protectionist... Um, uh, instincts in, in, in France, for example. So it'll be interesting to see it going forward, but I think in Paris they will also be looking in great anticipation of who is the next crown princess or crown prince now that AKK is not as much in favor as he was. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's fair. So German politics is in the model, right? Uh, but we'll, we'll see. I'm not, not going to go beyond make a prediction that Merkel is going to go away. I don't know. It's, You're not going to tell us who's next? My guess would be Armin Laschet, uh, who is the premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, but internal CDU politics are difficult to predict. Um, the SPD has got new leadership, so it'll be an interesting year uh, in German politics. Other questions?
Yes, back there. Um, sound check, yeah. <laughs> I needed to check the sound, that's the thing. Uh, Mr. Economides, actually, I would like to debate with you and discuss with you and learn from each other a lot about Turkey, but I'm not for Turkey here. Um, I come with my Dutch students, college students from the Netherlands here on a study trip, and I thank you all for organizing such a beautiful event because these are all international business students, and it's a great event for them as well, so they are discovering a lot about Europe. So uh, the question goes to um, Dr. Dingra. You uh, sketched a kind of negative uh, picture about, uh, uh, especially about the youngsters in the future. I think it's only for the UK because I see lots of developments in Amsterdam, Paris, and all kind of jobs are moving from the Brexit after the Brexit. The developments are already going. So I'm really curious what your opinion about, especially the economical uh, growth or economical uh, changes in the future um, about Amsterdam or about Paris. What's going to happen? Should they worry or is it all right? Thank you. <laughs> so let's just collect uh, a couple sorry. more just in case. There's two hands up up front. Right. Um, Samer from the LSE. Um, I want to ask a more specific question on, is, do you think the EU will continue its hardline stance on regulation regarding um, big tech and AI? And looking at this in the context of, will they start to speed up in the AI arms race, if you like? And will, they, will they continue to lag behind the US and China? Uh, yeah. Great question. Thank you very much for the panel. It's been really interesting. Um, just a quick question. Do you have any predictions about Catalonia in 2020? The football or the palms? <laughs> okay. okay. I, I'll start with yours. I have to admit that almost every day, all of us in the economics departments get invites to basically go talk in Paris or in Frankfurt or in Amsterdam precisely with the idea that you know, we know businesses are going to move there. I'm really not that certain as my colleague, senior colleague always puts it to me, you know, people who always threaten that they're going to leave the moment taxes go up actually never leave the country, they just find other ways of hiding their money. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not certain that, I think what we have already seen is some level of fall in capital expenditure, which is happening in firms already. We know FDI, which is that what the UK sends out abroad, has actually gone up, which suggests that it has something to do with firms not wanting to invest here, but instead to send it out. We've seen announcements, and it's not the actual FDI data, we've seen announcements of FDI coming into the country go down, and all of this stuff has happened much more recently. This is kind of more post-2018. This wasn't really then the data before. Now, how is that going to affect young people here? That's exactly what I was referring to, which is I anticipate that young UK new labor market entrants are the ones who are going to pay the price of it. And that's typically the case when there is a slowdown. It's young people who pay a much bigger price because new opportunities are hard to come by. It's startups that end up doing worse 
not just now, but forever afterwards. So in that sense, that's the reason I kind of was emphasizing the, the demographic component of it. In terms of does that open up more opportunities for people in Amsterdam, I think I'm not going to go quite that far because there are many things that economists like me can't compute and for which we don't have statistics, which are things like how good is it for you to come to London for an Erasmus scholarship. Now, those are sort of intangibles that we don't know how to measure well, how to quantify very well. And I don't know what negative spillovers that might have if the exchange rate shock was something to go by. The euro depreciated as well compared to Japan and the United States. So does that all go well for the, for the European Union and for people in the European Union? I can't be certain. Thank you. So there was the question about big tech and AI. Who wants to have a go at that one? Well, I can give it a go. But I think that, um, of course, we are still to see um, what especially the new commission will decide in this area, but um, I think we are going to see more of the same of what the previous uh, commission uh, set out to do, which is um, not a protectionist kind of regulation in these areas. It is uh, quite a liberal, and you should remember that uh, both the commissioner and um, the top part of the commission sitting on these areas uh, so very much from a centre-right um, policy platform. And um, th I think that the, they are in many ways um, uh, grappling with two issues. One is um, the issues of the internal market and how <coughs> industries are developing in these areas, but also very much, of course, what's happening globally. And um, the EU leaders have made a decision specifically two years ago that uh, to be uh, global uh, standard setters. And, and the EU is often global standard setters in these areas. And whether that's something you politically agree with or not is, is of course, a, a, um, a big question. But there is a big difference between the kind of regulation that has been let in the previous commission and what I would expect for this next commission to take forward as well, uh, which is more of a liberal... but. Um, uh, socially protective uh, agenda compared to what some of the um, parties on the centre-left stand for. And I think a good way to think about this is that often in uh, questions of regulation at the EU level, they often take the uh, outset in individuals' rights, so consumer rights, and how the industries are developing um, in ways that may further or harm the rights of citizens, of individuals, compared to those of the companies. And um, that's very different to what national governments usually, how they operate and think about these issues. So um, I think, yes, we are to see more regulation in these areas, but that's also because these areas are developing very quickly. Are they going to be able to um, do it at a pace where these industries, um, uh, they can catch up with these industries? Absolutely no. Uh, but I think that it will very much set the tone for how regulation happens globally as well and, and that Europe um, can potentially be uh, a very big um, agenda setter uh, for, for, for standards in general. Catalonia. Um, <laughs> no, I haven't said anything now. No, no so um, I think from an EU perspective, I think that... Um, 
the EU is not going to change its stance, which is to try as much as possible to stay out of it. The EU has always been first and foremost the organization of states, which is it is going Spain will have to take it very, very far before the the EU will want to get involved. You know, so Spain is first and foremost who they and that's so 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 I know that there were people, for example, in the in the in the successionist movement in Catalonia who'd sort of hoped that the EU would somehow be some kind of safe haven and be supportive. And, and I think there are so many concerns about successionism across Europe that they are not going to want to be seen to get involved in what is ultimately seen as an internal Spanish matter. Um, you know, whether or not you agree with that, I think that will continue to be the line of the EU. But if you're advising the Spanish government... What would you advise? Well, my advice to the Spanish government would be to sit down and have conversations about how to make Spain more federal. Yeah, but the thing is, we've also seen, of course, with the rise of Vox and so on, is that uh, this has become an issue that has become, um, a, you know, electoral appeal out of taking a very, you know, anti-Catalan. Uh, case, you know, that's a, that's a, something that has electoral appeal. So it's clearly become, sadly, a very uh, polarizing issue, and also sadly because within Catalonia. I mean, I remember, you know, sort of 20 years ago, writing my my master's thesis on 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 uh, regional identities across Europe, and back then, actually, the Catalan case was one where people, many people, had multiple identities. You know, they felt. Uh, Catalan and they felt Spanish and those were in, in, in together so what has happened is and then we see that is the you know by and, and one of my, my arguments I mean not to say it was a particularly good thesis but just to say that was the data that was out there and of course what's happening is that with the Spanish reaction and with that sort of depolarizing tendencies what's happening now is that you sort of have to choose you're either Spanish or you're Catalan and I think that's a sad development for Spain and, and for Catalonia so, so my, I mean not that the Spanish government would ever ask for my advice but I would say well sit down and, and have a conversation about how uh, powers can be decentralized so you know a compromise but you know again just like we don't compromise in this country you know, it's kind of my way or the highway. I mean, that seems an unfortunate, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in political compromise. So bringing it back home, so to speak, uh, there used to be, years ago, there used to be lots of academic conferences on Scotland and Catalonia as sort of the cases that are sort of destined for independence and what have you, and independence movement important and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you hear in the popular press discussions about uh, Scotland being like Catalonia, or in some ways analogous to it. Do you see it that way? But I certainly see, I mean, there's clearly also a very powerful successionist movement in, in, in Scotland, and they look like they'll probably, in these elections coming up next week, uh, do even better than they did last time. Now, the big question for them is, like, Brexit, again, which is, of course, the context of Scottish independence now, is sort of two countervailing forces. On the one hand, if we have another conservative government that takes the UK and Scotland, that of course voted overwhelmingly, remain out of the EU sort of against its will, that's a force saying, oh, you know, we should go it alone. It's another question of whether a second referendum would be granted. On the other hand, there's the countervailing movement is, look how difficult it is for the UK to leave the EU. Imagine being Scotland. So the uncertainty that, so, so there are these two movements, and if you look at Scottish 
support for Scottish independence. Of course, it's not like it's gone through the roof since the Brexit referendum. And I guess if I was the SNP, I'd want a kind of very stable sort of at least 60-40 before I'd risk it again. You know, so, and the other question, of course, the, the conservative government saying, oh, no, we're not going to have any more referendums. But, so, so there are these questions. So, of course, they're parallels, but it's interesting with these two movements. On the one hand, you have this sort of, you know, you can see why the Scots feel more the, separate from the England than ever. On the other hand, it also showing just how hard it is to leave a political and an economic union. Very good. So I think we have time for one more. Who wants to do the honors? The lady in the back. Eleanor I'm a PhD student at the International Relations Department. As a Franco-German, I, of course, cannot let that comment slide and just be very curious to hear maybe the panel's understanding of the Franco-German axis um, in the last year, maybe what prognosis, why should it be Laschard, not AKK? I'd be, of course, very curious to kind of hear the predictions and the analysis of how it kind of moved forward, because I do agree that Germany might not be a big visionary, but if one looks at the major changes that have occurred on the security and defense policy, it is Germany that has been pushing on PESCO, that has been pushing on the operational headquarters and so far. And just a quick second point, which is more of an open thought. Um, I thought that the debate on the agency and structure was very interesting, and um, yeah, I was actually wondering whether those increasingly cleavages now be there because of identities or political reasons, elite versus populism or socio-economic reasons. Might that not ultimately be the major crux and challenge that Europe will face in 2020, given that it affects regional, national and European Union level decision making across all of the areas, be it security defense, economics or, or institutional questions? Thank you. Thanks. Franco-German access. So we have an event about Europe. A hundred years ago, the Treaty of Versailles is signed. Um, and the Germans and the, the French are still at it, sort of driving much of what's happening on the continent. Is that fair? No, I think so. I mean, I think the German political scene may be in flux. There may be a changing of the guard. We're not exactly too sure who's going to emerge from um, the current political scene as... Uh, as the master of mistress of the scene. But there's absolutely no doubt that even if it is President Macron who seems to be taking charge of the vehicle, the vehicle is still going to be navigated by a combination of the driver and a navigator, which is going to be Germany. Um, there is no real other um, source of power balance in the Union against this very impressive coexistence between these two states, who, for their own interests, uh, drive the process forward. If you look at the other main players, if you want to use sort of very crude sort of big power, small power political um, uh, um, um, entities in the European Union, um, Italy is nowhere in the game. I mean, Italy is in a situation where it is so inward looking that it's not particularly interested in, in, in progressing down the route of mapping out a future Europe. Um, and a lot of the other states in the European Union that may want to play a role in defining the future of Europe individually are also very inward looking. The Spaniards are facing a whole issue which, which has been discussed vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Catalonia. Uh, in Poland, we have a, a debate about um, democratic backsliding and, and liberal democracy, which is stymieing any kind of discussion about the future of the European model. So there is an inevitability about the Franco-German axis being at the core mm -hmm. of what may come. Now, I can't predict what may come, mm -hmm. but there's no doubt that these two will be the two most significant uh, 
players in terms of defining the future of Europe, uh, whether it's multi-speed, uh, whether it takes new members on board, whether it becomes increasingly protectionist, whether it keeps other people out, whatever the, the future might bring, you can be sure that these two countries will be at the core of that. So ironically, so Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer used to be the premier of the Saarland. And those of you who know German history know that the Saarland is the contested region or one of the contested regions uh, between the two countries. And so who better than to help with this German-French axis? Um, I think within the party, she's now seen as a loser. It's a party that likes to win elections. It's not a party that's strongly driven by ideology. Um, and they can smell a loser, and I don't think she has the support. And then, so if she falls away, the question is who's, who's left standing, who's left standing in the party is Friedrich Maltz, who is a, a very good orator, uh, the, the kind of politician that people like to see in German, uh, sort of in the media and what have you, um, but he doesn't unify the party. He's somebody who represents a particular view within the party, a particular flavor within the party that's more big business, it's more ordnungskonservative, uh, um, and he doesn't have the appeal, I think, to a broader swath of, 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 of the electorate. So if it comes down to Maltz or somebody else, that somebody else uh, is somebody who is currently the premier of the biggest state, the biggest land in Germany, who is a congenial, likable fellow middle of the road, who's been there, done that, um, was born in, 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 I think was mayor of Aachen at some point, uh, a border town. Uh, he seems like the safe choice at this point. Um, this is not to say that any of these predictions will come true, but if I'm, at sort of somebody is looking at the electoral map of Germany, and if I'm advising the CDU, I'm going to say, your best bet is Laschet. So the default choice. Franco-German history, future, anything? I think a lot will be answered when we know who is paying the, into the budget the most. Ah, <laughs> the Germans. The Germans. Again, I think I really, I really think that the the budget negotiations that are ahead now, they will they will show a lot about the dynamics between the governments and of the policy areas that will be prioritized, not just in political speech, but actually in action. So I'm going to close it on the note that in the end it comes back to the money at the London School of Economics <laughs> and, political, and science. political Science. It's the um, I want to thank the panel very much, but of course I also want to thank you for coming and listening tonight. Thank you. Thank you.